Welcome to the McGuire Iron Podcast. My name is Brian Cooper. I am the Vice President of Business Development at McGuire Iron and your host for this podcast. At McGuire Iron, we've been helping to store and protect quality water for over 100 years. On this episode, our guest is Mark Mayer, Drinking Water Program Administrator for the state of South Dakota. We will be discussing the safety of drinking water, how water is tested, and why testing is so important. Mark has a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering from South Dakota State University and a Master's Degree in Civil Engineering from the University of Kansas. Over the last 19 years, Mark has served as the Drinking Water Program Administrator for the State of South Dakota Department of Agriculture and Natural Resources, implementing the Safe Drinking Water Act. Previously, he was a consultant in the private sector, working primarily on water and wastewater projects. Mark is a member of the South Dakota Water and Wastewater Association, American Water Works Association, National Rural Water Association, and the Association of Drinking Water Administrators. Mark, welcome to the McGuire Iron Podcast. Well, good morning. Thank you. Let's, Glad to be here. Yeah, let's talk about the South Dakota Department of Agriculture and Natural Resources when it comes to drinking water. Explain how your group takes care of drinking water underneath the Department of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Sure. So we are... Um, focused on primarily implementing the federal safe drinking water act on behalf of epa and so um, to do that we uh, work with epa to uh, go through a process um, where they delegate authority of the safe drinking water act to the state of south dakota and when we um, you know, achieve the various requirements they delegate or they deem us to have primacy of that uh, act. And then we, we have lots of commitments and things that's tied to, to implementing that for them. And, and so that's, you know, um, sort of why we do it on a regulatory basis, but, you know, the goal um, overall is, you know, bottom line is to protect public health uh, when it comes to drinking water that's safe to drink and meets, meets all the standards. And, and so, you know, everything we do really is tempered by um, public health protection. When you talk about the drinking water program that is um, is law and pushed through the EPA and into what you do, what is the drinking water program? Um, well, it's a, a group of of uh, staff here. Uh, we are, we're mostly in peer, but we do have. I have one staff person in our Watertown field office, and I have a couple in our Rapid City field office. And, um, you know, the, the drinking water in South, uh, drinking water program in South Dakota is um, truly as successful as it is because of those, those individuals uh, on the staff that, uh, that take their job very seriously and work hard to help water systems and uh, any of the consumers in South Dakota understand what what safe drinking water is and what the requirements are to uh, ensure that uh, that it that it is safe. So, why is the testing and tracking and enforcement of these standards so important? I know you touched on the public health aspect, but why why is the public health around drinking water so important you know it's it's all about the water quality and, and water quality is always changing whether that be at the source or out in the distribution system and so without that ongoing testing to compare those results to the various standards and determine compliance we wouldn't know if the system's meeting the standards and if protecting the health of the consumer is being achieved. And so, so that testing is, is really key to knowing, you know, the quality 
of the water, you know, that, that, uh, that, uh, somebody's drinking and then tracking that those testing testing results is also uh, critical because that can uh, provide us uh, insight to see if something's changing and trending over time and and that is that change or that trend headed in the right direction or not you know so we can uh, see if uh, uh, systems water quality is headed towards uh, a standard or not meeting a standard and then maybe, you know, working with them to get a treatment, you know, system installed or revise operations in a way to ensure that compliance is achieved or maintained and they don't exceed any of the standards. And so that's where that tracking is important. And then, then enforcement is important um, because then, you know, that's how we, you know, make somebody do, you know, do a change in order to, to comply. And, um, and we um, are required to do um, enforcement orders when certain um, conditions exist. And those are all part of our agreements with EPA. Um, but honestly, we work really hard to not have to do those formal official enforcement proceedings. Uh, we find that we would much rather work with the system and help them, you know, come back into compliance Um through technical assistance rather than force them into compliance through uh, some official administrative order and uh, notice of violation, because that's those two things, uh, the notice of violation and administrative order, that's, that's kind of a big process to go through and takes a lot of time to develop. And, and then you're putting systems on a more formal uh, enforcement um, schedule to, to come back into compliance and, and, uh, you know, you're talking with lawyers and different things. And so that, that just becomes a much more involved process. And we're, we feel like if we can, can, uh, just work with them and try to get them back on track that, that those efforts are, are headed in there, you know, getting them in the right direction. And, and, uh, and that's where we, that's where we would prefer to be rather than in court. So. Right. Now talk a little bit about, you had mentioned that, you know, the, the regulations come from EPA that you guys enforce or, you know, yep. help communities and water systems with. Does South Dakota have any of its own, um, water regulations or do they strictly come from EPA and then they're administered through your office? We, we do not have any standards that we've developed internally or on our own here in the state. We, we have, uh, we, we rely on, on the federal government to establish those standards. Uh, you know, South Dakota is a small state. And so we don't have, a lot of uh, of the expertise needed to develop a standard, you know, whether that's uh, uh, epidemiology and all these different things that go into developing a standard. Um, not that the state doesn't have an epidemiologist, but, um, you know, it's kind of its own little special niche. So anyway, and in fact, we have, statutes in South Dakota that say that we can not have a standard more stringent than EPA. And so, um, and we're not alone. There are other states in the nation that have that similar law. And, and so we're sort of limited in, in what we can do. And that's, there's good in that. And then there might be some, sometimes where it might be nice to be able to, to, get ahead of EPA and get a standard in place. But uh, by and large, the, the, 
there's benefit in having a national standard and relying on that um, for compliance. So, so we adopt the the federal uh, standards by reference in our rules. So, we when we pass a rule related to drinking water standards, it's adopting the federal language of the Safe Drinking Water Act directly into our state code. Or it refers our state code refers directly to this this federal code for those particular standards. And the only other one that's maybe a little unique is we do have a fluoridation, water fluoridation requirement. And EPA doesn't have a fluoridation requirement, but we we've adopted the CDC's standards for for fluoridation gotcha and so so that's the only kind of other one that's maybe a little unique so but, the, uh, yeah so there are 645 public water systems and that's who you guys deal with let's talk a little bit about testing how often okay. how often do these water systems test their water what does that look like for these systems <laughs> Well, that's a very complicated question. And, and I say that, uh, only because it, it just depends on what type of water system it is, how many people they serve, what the water quality is, those sorts of things. And so it's a really different answer for, for each system. And, and we, we have, each system's testing requirements out on our website. If you go to DANR's homepage, you can uh, scroll around along the top and find the Office of Water, and you can get to the Drinking Water homepage. And on our homepage, the very first thing you will see is a map of South Dakota and a bunch of blue dots. And the blue dots represent all of the water systems in the state that we regulate. And then there's a search bar up there. You can type in the name of the water system. For instance, web water, uh, you know, they aren't a town, but uh, um, they certainly are a water system that serves a lot of people in a lot of towns. And so you can type in web and then it'll pop up and then you can click on their little blue dot and then you can see what their different testing requirements are but uh, at a minimum every water system will test monthly for uh, for bacteriological parameters so uh, total coliform and e coli if total coliform goes bad they take it further to see if it's e coli or not um, so all water systems test for that monthly, regardless of what type they are. And we have three types of water systems. We have the we have a community water system, which is what you, most people think of. That's your towns or housing subdivisions, you know, communities where people, you know, live and drink the water every day. Then we have a transient non-community water system, and that's a system where. Um, it serves a transient population. So if a rest area along the interstate has its own well, the population that that system serves is transient in that it's not the same people every day, or, um, you know, it's their visitors passing through or, uh, and so, so they are, they're held to the least amount of testing required. They only have to test for bacteriological samples monthly, and then they do an annual nitrate, and I think a nitrite every three years, and that's all they do. Where the communities, and then we have another class of non-community called the non-transient non-community, and that's a a like Mount Rushmore is one of them, for instance, they have enough staff that work at that facility that we hold them to similar standards as the community systems because the staff are drinking that water all day, every day when they go to work. Or if it's a school, for instance, that has its own water supply and it's the same people 
you know, there are more than 25 people a day or they're using that water. They, they have to sample for 90 different parameters, but the, the frequency of that depends on water quality and some of their location, for instance. So, um, um, then depending on the levels of those chemical contaminants, um, they may be able to go to reduce monitoring, which might allow them to sample maybe every three years or, or they might be able to get a waiver. And, you know, we try to, to minimize this testing a system has to take without, um, minimizing the protection to public health. So, so, um, you know, we look at kind of the risk exposure potential and, uh, if there's little risk, we can reduce the frequency of sampling to help save money again, without, you know, minimizing the protection of public health. And so, so long answer to your question, but, uh, it's a very, very, and that's probably one of our more complex right. things is tracking all of that and then determining what the sampling um, frequencies are and making sure that we're on top of that. But like I said, we do put all that out there on our, on our website. And, and then we have two different um, types of, we have distribution sampling and we have source or what we call entry point sampling. And the entry point is from, you know, the, the where the water comes into the system and then the distribution system sampling is out in the pipes throughout uh we try to spread that out throughout the system so that we're making sure that throughout the system and the pipes that serve the water things are looking good so um and, and then population factors into that too so the more people they serve the more tests they have to take and so the city of Sioux Falls takes hundreds of bacteriological samples in a month where a small housing subdivision might take one. And so anyway. Right. And that's a great segue because that was my next question is how, how do these communities or these different uh, groups test the water? And once it's tested, where, where does it go? How does, how does it get from yeah. the test to testing and results? Sure. So in South Dakota, we require the systems to collect the samples. So typically that's done by a certified operator, but it can be a person that's been trained to collect the sample. Does, doesn't necessarily have to be a certified operator, but they would be certainly collecting that sample on behalf of the certified operator. And so it's not like, um, you know, anybody can just take a sample and, and submit it for compliance without the operator knowing. Um, but anyway, so that the sampling, the actual collecting of the water into the correct bottles and the correct procedures is done by the system through either a sampler or the certified operator. And then they're required to submit those results to a lab that's certified to sample drinking water. And we certify who those labs are. They have to meet certain criteria that is established by EPA. And then our state health lab with the Department of Health does some verification testing and whatever to make sure that their samples results are coming into, you know, are accurate. And so, so that certified lab then uh, analyzes the water sample to determine the level of the contaminants that they're testing for against the standards. And then, then the results of the samples are sent back to the system and generally directly to us as well. And then we, you know, take it from there um, to, you know, log that it's been sampled, um, determine whether it meets compliance or not. And then if it doesn't, you know, what 
follow-up sampling that they might need to do to to um, you know get back into compliance if if they uh, exceeded a standard or if they for instance if they get a bacteriological sample that tests positive for bacteria then they're required to do additional sampling and they sample the same site but then they also sample locations upstream and downstream from that site and then depending on all of those results they will determine whether there was a violation or not and sometimes if it's if there was no positive results upstream and downstream but they repeated they had positive samples at the same location both times then we know well there's a problem at that individual location but it's not a system problem and so the system's not out of compliance but they know they have a little issue with that one location that they need to take care of so so anyway there's a lot of just and you know depending on the results there's a lot of follow-up with the, the water system on what are what are the next steps then based on the test results and you, you mentioned some of the issues that come up in testing. What are some of the most common issues that happen uh, in South Dakota um, during testing? What are some of the common problems that are found? Well, sometimes there's just a, a you know, the sample was collected poorly and uh, maybe it was contaminated in, in inadvertently. And so um, they'll, you know, be able to do a confirmation sample to make sure that the sample the result is accurate uh, sometimes it's sampled at the wrong location like a lead and copper sample for instance it needs to be you know supposed to be taken at certain taps and sometimes somebody will take one at their outside hose faucet and that's not an approved tap and so the results would come back high um, potentially and then we follow up you know where'd you take that sample oh we just we grabbed it right out of the hose bib you know <laughs> right okay, well you can't you know that's not a that's not an allowable location so you need to resample you know and then they'll take it from the right location and hopefully it'll be good and uh, that kind of thing um kind of some of the more common issues in terms of non-compliance um, a lot of that really is kind of a regional thing. You know, you get up in the northeast part of the state or even some pockets of the hills, you'll find arsenic uh, levels that exceed the standard. Um, Western South Dakota, certain spots, uh, you'll find high radionuclides, especially like east of the foothills of uh, rapid and southern hills um but there are some little pockets in in the hills themselves when you get to eastern south dakota you know a lot of uh, eastern south dakota has gravitated away from individual wells and they have you know large regional systems that supply because of the uh, nitrate issues in groundwater because the you know, the eastern South Dakota is significantly different than western South Dakota in terms of water resources just because of the, the glaciated till of the east versus the non-glaciated non areas of the west. So the aquifers are deeper west and less susceptible to surface um, contamination where eastern South Dakota, a lot of the aquifers are fairly shallow and when you have a lot of Ag activities, um, especially back in the old days uh, when you know fertilizer wasn't as expensive. I think <laughs> right. um, they they would uh, you know they everybody knows the more nitrogen you have, the more corn you grow, and so um, so there were a lot of issues with nitrates back in the you know forty years ago, um, and now and that's what led to a lot of the regional water supply projects being built out uh, in the east and um but now you know with the better understanding of what's going on and with the technology that's out there um and the cost of 
fertilizers, the uh, ag industry is much more um, sensitive to to the those issues and and uh, and smart about applying uh, those chemicals that can you know cause issues in the drinking water. So so anyway, that's um, you know some of that, and then you know statewide. There's always the potential for bacteriological issues, um, and that's why that's one of those that's that's required. Everybody's required to do that monthly. Um, it's not that we have this widespread bacteriological problem because we do have um, a lot of uh, you know systems that are doing proper disinfection and have a residual disinfection level out in their system to ensure that bacteriological issues don't occur out in their distribution systems. But um, anyway, that's certainly, uh, you know, more of a statewide thing. And then, you know, I, I will say we've got kind of two different types of what we have you know, contaminants that also drive the frequency of testing and, and the, the bacteriological and the nitrate. Those are two that we call uh, acute contaminants in that you drink one glass, you could get sick um, if it's got high enough levels where a uh, most of the rest are what we call a chronic contaminant where, you know, you're drinking that water over a, you know, a period of a lifetime before you might have a higher increase for cancer or something like that and so so those chronic contaminants are the ones that we can have waivers on or they might get reduced to you know sampling every one every three years or six years or nine years depending on on the levels and the particular contaminants so so anyway it's a very uh complex uh mixture of uh of of sampling requirements and, and compliance determinations and stuff, which is again why I credit our staff uh, to doing such a good job keeping track of it all. We are the smallest water uh, drinking water program in the nation, and yet we have very high compliance rates. And, and I again attribute that to the hard work that uh, the staff does, and and then couple that to the hard work that the certified operators do on a daily basis um, out in the systems, you know, they're the ones in the trenches, you know, making sure that things are, are, are um, managed well locally. And so, yeah, let's, let's talk about certified operators. That's another part of what your department does is, Certify right. operators. What is a certified operator in South Dakota? And you've touched on a little bit about the testing that they do, but what is a certified operator and what is what does their job look like? Well, I would call them unsung heroes myself, but uh, they are definitely people in the community that uh, get taken for granted, I would say, most often. But uh, the the certified operator program in South Dakota is is a required program that we have to have uh, to have primacy with EPA's uh, Safe Drinking Water Act, and but each state's certified operator program might be slightly different. In South Dakota, we um, we certify operators for both water and wastewater, but uh, the the levels of certification and stuff are are tied to the complexity of the treatment system and the number of people that are served. Um, for instance, in the wastewater certification um, program, a system that serves less than 500 people doesn't have to have a certified operator. But if you have more than 500 people and you have a centralized wastewater facility or collection system and it goes to a treatment system whether that be a mechanical treatment or a stabilization pond they have to have a certified operator or and they may need to be certified in in both 
collection and treatment. Um, on the on the drinking water side, we have any regulated public water system that serves 25 or more people, uh, they have to have a certified operator. And we have some different classes. We have, you know, small water treatment. And then we have class one to class four water distribution and water treatment. And so, um, so, and those classes, the class one, two, three, four, class one is the kind of least complex, class four is the most complex. And so, so the city of Sioux Falls has, you know, class four treatment and distribution operators where a smaller community may only, that has just a, say a single well and, um, you know, all they do is chlorinate um, and it goes to a storage. They would have a class one um, water treatment and a class one water distribution operator. So, so those rules are all kind of out on our website as well. We have a page dedicated to, to um, water or certification. And then um, we offer free training to anyone that wants to be certified. And then we also, um, they have to test. So, so depending on their, what system they're working for, they have to meet certain background requirements and years of experience and those sorts of things. And then they also have to pass a, a test that, uh, that they basically can demonstrate that they know what, they need to know in order to be in responsible charge of that system. And in South Dakota, we contract with a company uh, called ABC uh, Associated Board of Certification, and they they develop the test, and then we proctor that. And then that the the beauty behind that is is it's a defensible test. So if somebody were to say this guy or this person wasn't qualified to operate our system and, and people got sick because of it, you know, we can say, well, he did, they did pass this test and that test is nationally, um, you know, vetted to be, to, to demonstrate the needs of that, of, you know, at least the knowledge side of it to, to know that they, are qualified to operate that system. Right. And so, so we do that testing, um, through ABC and then the training we have, uh, had a contract with South Dakota rural water to do the training classes. And so a lot of times we, we offer training classes and they're usually a couple days long and we move them around the, the state. And we have different, you know, might have class one water treatment test or class or class four water and wastewater treatment or distribution or whatever. So different levels of certification training are, are provided so that you, you know, if you don't need that high level, you don't need to go there and get blown away with all of the <laughs> higher level math and whatever. But and then we try to move it around the state geographically so people don't have to travel as far and um, um, you know, our, our certification program, we're not trying to make money on that. We do charge for the test. Uh, we did have a bill in our uh, legislature a few years ago to increase the cost of the test. It hadn't been changed in 50 years and it was 10 bucks to take the test, <laughs> but it was, but it was costing us $60 to give it. Right. And so, so we raised the testing fee to $60 and I think that'll help um, people take it a little more serious before when it was 10 bucks, they would right. you know, just sign up and well, I'll see how I do. And it's only cost me 10 bucks. And they weren't really thinking of the cost of being gone from work and then the cost of us, you know, losing 50 bucks each time we take a test, but, but, um, we have about 1400, um, 
people certified with different certificates and stuff. And we track all of that as well. And out on the website, uh, operator also needs to do continuing education. We call them contact hours. And so we track these hours of training that they, they take. And then when they renew their certificates, we make sure they have the right contact hours in place to keep up with the standards in the industry. And so, well, and that's so anyway, yeah. And that's one of the things that we're very grateful at McGuire to be uh, helping with. We do uh, webinars every other month to help get water operators uh, their certification hours because it is important, but yeah. from your guys's perspective, how important is it and how difficult is it to find certified operators train certified operators and retain certified operators because you talked about them earlier being really the unsung heroes in the communities that don't get a lot of recognition or probably, you know, are on a great pay scale. And so how, how difficult is that whole thing in this equation of water quality in South Dakota? Right. Well, it, it, it's, it's not an easy thing, especially in rural areas or remote areas. It's, you know, it's more difficult for sure. And we're all experiencing the, what do they call it? The gray tsunami of, uh, you know, people retiring and then trying to get new people hired into those positions um, has been challenging. And, and a lot of that is you hit on it, uh, you know, quite squarely and the, the pay is not, um, necessarily where it should be especially if you actually understand what they what they do and what right. they're responsible for and all the certification so, they have to get and all of the training and the certifications that they need to to have and and so so it it is a challenging thing you know one of the things that rural communities have going for them is generally the people that that do get certified you know, are there for a reason. They want to be in a small town. They want to be part of that community and they don't want to move. And so if you can find those people, you know, and get them trained and, and whatnot, you know, they, they generally don't turn over a lot. Um, We have been fortunate. The large regional systems have started to recognize the need to sort of help some of the member systems that they serve. And so, so they are, there's been more contracting recently in these smaller towns that will contract with the regional systems operator to do the certification, um, to be the certified operator for their community. And that might be one of those where they train somebody locally to be the sampler to collect the samples, but they are kind of being overseen by somebody that's got the proper certification. And um, anytime, and then out in the hills where we have a lot of small housing subdivisions and, you know, communities of just homeowners, and they don't, they can't afford to have a full-time operator and they don't need one. And so we have contract operators out there as well. And we have several companies that, that do maybe 20, 30 water systems. And that's, so it's their full-time job, but they're not, you know, they're able to kind of divide that up over, over many systems, but you do get, volunteers that you know maybe somebody didn't show up for the homeowners association meeting and they got volunteered <laughs> to be the operator <laughs> and they they'll never miss another meeting but they uh you know they're they're able to be certified they just have to be able to put in the time and the you know energy to get certified and then keep it but um but it is a big responsibility and um and i think that uh you know, uh, systems that that understand what they're actually doing and the importance of it, um, they are recognizing that maybe they do need to to step up and support these people and, and pay them more appropriately. Um, and regionalization is another thing that we're actively encouraging. Um, 
and regionalization doesn't mean that you have to hydraulically connect necessarily to another water system. You can share resources, you can share billing and, and you know, people and tools and those sorts of things too, without necessarily, you know, being owned by the same uh, entity. And so, so, you know, we're, we're actively trying to help things, you know, where we can make sense and and, and economically uh, be achieved to, you know, minimize the burden of uh, our regulations on the consumers. And so, um, you know, that's, that's another thing we, we do to, uh, you know, try and help with the operator certification issue. But like I said, we do contract with Rural Water and they do a great job providing training. We have other uh, technical assistance provider uh, in the state, Midwest Midwest Assistance Providers or MAP, and they provide training and and they have their own little niche of of, uh, technical assistance that they can provide systems. And we contract with those two organizations and uh, pay for circuit riders and different things to uh, to be out there um, helping these operators do their jobs. Another thing that we do that's unique in South Dakota is we do a, a annual award and we've been doing that for, this is I think the 22nd year. And we, we recognize each water system that has complied with all of the requirements um, in the preceding year. And, and then we also recognize the operators that helped achieve that uh, goal. And then we have kind of two levels of system awards. We have kind of an annual award. So they made it that last year. And then we also have what we call our secretary's award of drinking water excellence. And that's if a water system has had 10 or more consecutive years of compliance. And we have, quite a number of those it's pretty impressive actually that have had 10 or more years of consecutive compliance and then we have of our and this is just for the community water systems but the uh, so of the 480 or so community water systems we have over uh, 200 and some that have the 10 years and i think we have in that around 50, uh, I don't know, I, I don't have the numbers right off the top of my head, but in the 50 range of that have done it for all 22 years. That's and, awesome. And, and that's a really uh, significant achievement. And so, so anyway, we send out certificates to the systems with the award, but then we also send out a certificate to the operators and we send out draft press releases and things like that to try to make it easy for this system to recognize those operators at least once a year um, when they do meet all these standards to give them a pat on the back uh, publicly at a meeting or something like that and maybe a little blip in the newspaper with their name and stuff and try to give them a little 15 minutes of fame uh, you know of well-deserved recognition for the efforts that they do behind the scenes so Right. Well, the last thing I have for you, Mark, is let's talk about the future of drinking water in South Dakota. What does that look like? What are some of the things you're hearing or might be coming or what what does that future of water look like? You know, it's it's getting really busy. (laughs) And uh, uh, one of the one of the biggest things that we will have coming in the next couple of years is there's some big changes to the lead and copper rule uh, requirements um, under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And one of the big changes is is uh, recognizing that that lead service lines or service lines that contain lead containing materials can contribute to, um, you know, or can impact the health of the person that's served by those pipes. And so it gets a little tricky because you have a, you know, typically in 
in a water system. You've got the mains out in the street and the city or the system owns those. And then you have this service line and it's branches off that main and it might go up to the property line and have a curb stop or a shutoff. And then from the shutoff to the house through the person's yard is the private side of that line. And then the public owns from the shutoff back to the main. That's the most typical. But um, the water in the system in the main and going through the service line doesn't necessarily have lead in it. But when that water comes in contact with lead containing materials of the service line, it can leach lead out of that service line and then cause a health impact to the consumer in the house. And so, um, so there's a big push that's going to be coming up here in the next year and a half where all service lines in the entire state are going to need to be um, inventoried to determine whether they're lead or not. And so all the systems that um, are required to comply with that will be doing these inventories. And we're just going to be rolling that out here in March to try to get them going. We, we've secured a contract with the company to help put together some messaging and framework on templates and different things to make it a little easier for the water systems to gather this information in an organized way that we can pull it in and, and track it better. But that's going to be a huge lift. Um, and then coupled with that, then there's also a big push to remove lead service lines from systems to minimize that risk to public health. And so there's some funding issues or potential funding sources and out and that we're trying to figure out how we can best uh, leverage to help with that effort um, that this project will also support. And so you're going to hear a lot about lead in drinking water. And the good news is, is there's not lead in the source water, but there could be lead in drinking water as a result of the piping, the, the service lines and the premise plumbing that that hopefully we can get addressed and minimize that risk and that also is going to gravitate gravitate to schools and daycares and so that's going to get a little dicey um but you know the bottom line we're moving towards public health protection and improve public health and that's that's our goal and so that's a good thing and then there's another big um focus on uh, emerging contaminants and the big one that you hear about and you're going to hear more and more about is is um, uh, PFAS. Yeah, or PFAS, the, right. The, the perfluorinated compounds. And, yep. and we do have a couple of areas in South Dakota, in particular Sioux Falls and out by Ellsworth Air Force Base um, that are impacted by um, PFAS chemicals that were uh, found in firefighting foams that they used in practicing and fighting aircraft fires. Mm. And so those two uh, areas both have, you know, air bases and, and have active work going on delineating the extent of the contamination and you know, tracking uh, um, the levels and things like that to ensure that people aren't uh, being served water with PFAS chemicals. And those are all, um, the trickiest thing about those is they're being measured in parts per trillion, which is a very, very small right. <laughs> amount. And, you know, a lot of our standards are in parts per million, million right? some maybe in parts per billion. But when you get into parts per trillion, that whole another make, you know, um, uh, level of magnitude, it's it doesn't take much 
to contaminate that sample. Like, for instance, if you use the wrong Sharpie pen <laughs> to write on the label or you wear your Gore-Tex coat, um, right. well, um, the, you could contaminate the sample just by having that sort of, um, you know, be wearing that sort of uh, material. And so the collecting those samples gets a lot more important in, in how you do that correctly so you don't have a false positive and and then spend a, a lot of money chasing down right. you know a, a false results so so anyway yeah those are kind of the two biggie uh things in the future of drinking water i would say that's going to really be consuming you know a lot of our time and uh, and then that's just you know like i said we're the smallest program in the nation so that um it's just going to tax us a little bit more um, to try to get it all done. And, you know, we don't want to, we can't lose sight of the core program mm -hmm. uh, and the testing and all the standards and everything that uh, go around, you know, protecting public health uh, with these extra things that, that aren't necessarily standards yet. And right. so, um, but they are certainly priorities of EPA and, and, in the news and uh, and and important to and, and will to be standards stay on top of and will be and standards will at be some standards. point. Yeah, exactly. So, so anyway, that's sort of uh, kind of the the two big things I would say that are on the future uh, radar of uh, the drinking water program here in South Dakota and and frankly nationally. Um, all right, Mark. Well, hey, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about drinking water in South Dakota today and testing and certification and, and why it's so important to public health every day. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to, to visit with you and, and appreciate all the good work you're doing. All right. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Remember, you can always connect with us by going to our website, mcguireiron.com. You can ask questions by sending us an email at info at or you can follow or reach out to us on any of our social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us on the McGuire Iron Podcast.